This program is brought to you by P1 Australia Racing Components, the designer of the oil heat mats for dry sump tank applications. Find out more about the truths on engine oil heating at p1australia.com. You love supercars and keeping up to speed sometimes means hitting the rev limiter? Welcome to the Gates Rev Limiter Podcast. After each round, we unpack what happened. Join Andrew Clark. We've paused a fraction and got it right, and they probably still would have won the race. I mean, and yours truly, Neville Wilkinson. These are the heady days when Ford was spending mega bucks for all the action, all the controversy, and sometimes a little emotion. The Gates Rev Limited Supercars Podcast. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or where you listen to them. Thunder Media. Hi, I'm Chaz Mostert. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. And you're listening to Inside Supercars. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. On Inside Supercars today, we speak to the real gentleman, Jim. To go to that, and a lot of people knew we were coming, so they made an effort to come out. And No, it was just a great weekend. Jim Stone talks about the last race at Pukekohe and a lot more on Inside Supercars and it starts now. Welcome to Inside Motorsport, Tony Whitlock and Craig Ravel and we're joined by Jim Stone who is freshly back from Pukekohe, the very final Pukekohe Park Raceway meeting. Jim, I'm sure that it was a wonderful meeting and that's what we're here to talk to you today about. Yeah, it was It was good to go for the last meeting. I mean, the track opened in 1963. I raced there in 68 um, and 60, early 68 and then I left for England soon after. Um, but, you know, when I came back from England, I built Formula Ford and raced from I raced Formula Ford there many times. Then we built another Formula Ford from Brother Ross, and he raced there lots of times. And I had an Escort Twin Cam, which I raced there. I did a couple of six-hour endurance races in a Tirana. So yeah, it had a lot of memories for me. Without we won the endurance race in. 90, 89 maybe, with um, Steve Soper and Andrew Medecki in a Sierra, and then went back with supercars for the next 15 years. I never, ever won there in a supercar, which is one of my greatest regrets, but we got two podiums with Marcus and Russell Engel. So, yeah, that's the history. I went back to... Be the see, be there at the last meeting. Enjoyed it immensely. The met up with a lot of people that I haven't seen in years. So yes, very happy. And tell me, Jim, um, one of the things about your history, you had a, a very large history uh, at an American motorsport when uh, the Can Am series was running, and you were there for the four years that it was at its peak. But what about motorsport back in New Zealand? Did you just were you just involved with racing in your own cars and building your own cars there? Yeah, no, I built we built uh, cars for other people. We built 
a Vauxhall Victor for Jack Nasal. Now, Jack Nasal was a, a previous touring car champion, and we built that, went to America and got an engine from McLaren's and built it. It was called Victorious, that car. It won another championship. So, yeah, we're involved. And then, you know, later on we built a Formula Pacific car as well, which I forgot to mention before, which Ross won the New Zealand Gold Star in, in a car that Ross and I built, you know, against all the marches and rolls and chevrons. So that was a, a real high point in Ross's and my life. Indeed. And that was the CUDA, is that correct? CUDA, yep. CUDA 3. Um. Yeah, and and of course the the earlier ones were Formula Fords that you built. Yeah, the first two were Formula Fords. We never won the we won really? races with Cooter Two with Ross, but then we sold the car to Mike Finch and he won the New Zealand Championship the next year after we sold it. Oh, wonderful! Oh, okay, um, okay. So I understand that uh, you were twenty one um, when you went to England in sixty eight. Uh, just 22, just turned 22. Okay. I went over in April and, and, and my birthday was in March, so. Okay. <laughs> and embarked on Formula 3. Yeah, did Formula 3 in Europe. At, at that time, Formula 3 had a start money, start money um, incentive, and I went with Bill Stone, which is no relation of mine, but a very good friend, and we grew up with motor racing in New Zealand. I went over with him. We did a year of Formula 3 running around Europe. And then at the end of the year, end of 1968, I started building a Formula 2 car for Howden Ganley, and I built it at McLaren's because Howden used to work at McLaren's. He had a very good um, rapport with Bruce. So I built a Formula 2 car at McLaren's and then Howden decided that he was not, not going to do it. So they put me on the Can-Am team and I was off to America in 1969, which we won all 11 races. An extraordinary time, Jim. Um, I, actually, just mentioning that, uh, I, I've been lucky enough to interview Howden a couple of times and one of the things I, I so remember Howden telling me about a time when uh, testing at Goodwood and um, Howden had said uh, that Bruce came through the factory one morning and said, uh, bring a helmet with you and some overalls. It will give you a drive. Uh, it, it was an extraordinary man, Bruce McLaren, to work with. Yeah, incredible, yes. and. Uh I'll just be a little while. Yeah, right, I'll leave there. That's the yeah. other side of the house. Yeah. yeah, that was um, yeah, incredible times. So lucky to have done all that stuff. I mean, when we left for America with the Can-Am team, there was only four people, four of us. And then the engine man was in America. That was it, five. To come. It, it, it was an extraordinary juggernaut that uh, – uh, orange McLaren uh, rolling across the series. It had the impression of being something much larger because I was following it very closely as much as I could. Of course, there was no internet in those days in the 60s and 70s, but 
um, a, a wonderful time. And it's extraordinary to think that motor racing in that era of 5,000s of Can-Am or the Trans-Am series, it was such a dominant force, wasn't it, to be there in America at it? Oh, yeah. I mean, and it was, you know, at that time, America was a different place to what it is today. And, you know, we had a, a great time driving around. You know, we used to drive to every race. So you crisscrossed America every two months. And, you know, we went from Edmonton in the north of Canada, Watkins Glen right down the south to Atlanta and to Riverside and Laguna Seca. I mean, it was just a, a great time to be involved. So after that uh, four or five years in America, uh, you decided to go back to New Zealand in the early 70s. Yeah, I was back home in 73, um, and that's when we started – um, building Cuda 2 and Cuda 3 and Escorts and Vauxhall Vixers. And and you and Beverly were married then? No, we got – I did a few years there and then I met Bev and we – she wanted to go overseas, so we went back to America for one year to do Formula Atlantic for Kevin Cogan. Now, Kevin Cogan was quite a good driver. He – He's famous for taking Mario yeah. Andretti out at at, uh, at the start of the Indianapolis 500. Um, but I did a year with Kogan um, and then came home and got married. You were then starting to build your own family, um, well, shortly after that, not immediately. But So you, you were building racing cars and, and your racing was your life. This is what you decided you wanted to do? Yeah. When I, we did a... What do you want to be when you grow up? When we were twelve at school. Now I used to, oh. I used to, from where I lived out in the country, there was a hill climb, and Bruce McLaren had been out there a couple of times, and I don't remember what, but it might have been an Austin Seven or something. Anyhow, when we did this, what do you want to do when you grow up? All I wanted to do was work for Bruce McLaren, so. It was a bit sad that I was there the day that he died. But anyhow, that was my life ambition to get there. You're involved in some wonderful racing in your life. And, I mean, fast forward um, to the 90s, I remember vividly um, at uh, Wellington when I really sort of started to get to know you. I'd been doing race facts for a year or so, but I have strong memories of that series when a dozen cars went to Pukekohe uh, in the following weekend down in Wellington. It was no longer the Wellington Street race as such, but the other way around. Had, uh, it was Welling- three- Wellington first. Okay, and and um, the the thing about it was that uh, they weren't endurance races, just sprint races. And you were running Alan Jones' team with Paul Radisich driving alongside Alan. Yes, correct. And uh, of course. Um, it was an amazing time. I mean, had you and Ross decided the direction on what you were going to go? I mean, you bought Alan out of his team. Um, had that sort of started to, to join? Because you've obviously been together at Dick Johnson's. You'd run Andrew Medecki. Um So this was where you were going to be living then, you, you thought, in Queensland? Uh, absolutely. We The whole, from the time that I arrived in Australia and, we worked in Sydney for a while on Sierras, and then we shifted to the 
Gold Coast to build more Sierras. From that time, we were just planning on how the hell can we get into this business because we wanted so badly to, to be our own bosses and build our own cars. But it took a little while, you know. We're very fortunate to win the championship in Bathurst with John Bow and Dick Johnson. That helped immensely getting some funding together to start the first team with Alan Alan Jones, which was called AJR, which was really Alan, Jimmy and Ross. Bill, starting your own team was uh, running over there. It was uh, straight after you'd run at Bathurst. And, and I think from memory, Alan had a fire in, in his car. Is that correct? That, that was the uh, year? No, that was the year before. I mean, 98, we won Bathurst with Bright and Richards. But yeah. in 96, we were... 96 or 97, not sure. No, 96, we were in the lead when a fuel a fuel line broke and it caught fire. I didn't do much damage, but we were out of the race. Yep. And, and of course, um, it was a, a momentous time um, to be starting your own team. I mean, you obviously had to get the uh, uh, the financials involved and you, you became one of, uh, known for pack leader racing um, with the backing of Philip Morris. Yeah, Philip Morris wanted to continue on in uh, whatever year, 97. 97, 98. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, they helped us get started. They had a they had a budget that they hadn't spent. And so, you know, it wasn't a lot of money. I think our first year with... Pertech was like two hundred thousand dollars for the whole year, so we worked pretty hard to to build it into something and be successful ourselves without you know let let the racing do the talking. So, well, of course, you've been involved in uh, winning Bathurst a number of times with your own team, and of course, prior to that with Dick Johnson, um, three championships in a row. When your your cars, the ones that you and Ross uh, had put together um, were dominant forces through that early uh, 2000s. Yeah, we worked pretty hard. I mean, you know, there's, there was also two Super 2 championships with Wynn Autumn and, and McLaughlin. Um, yeah, we, we worked very hard. We worked, you know, with the aim of being the best and we worked very hard on our engines, which we, we were at that time the only team that was doing everything, building engines, panel beating, painting, building chassis. So we're very proud of that area. I mean, it, that, that era, it was, it was hard work, but it was what we always thought we'd have to do. Going back to uh, your uh, 12-year-old ambition, what do I want to be when I grow up sort of thing, um, could you have foreseen that, you know, your career would have taken the directions it did? I mean... Uh, I mean, enormous success in, in some of the greatest racing there's ever been. And uh, and then your own team. I mean, it, it's a wonderful uh, legacy you leave behind. Yeah, I mean, nobody can ever guess where we're going to be. You know, I, we thought that we might have had a future in New Zealand um, after being overseas, but... It became pretty obvious that if we wanted to be anything professional in racing, we had to shift to Aussie. So, 88 was it. Over we came and, you know, it wasn't easy for a start with very young children, but 
we had an ambition and made it happen. Jim, as you well know, Farball last night was watching uh, some Formula E with both Nick Cassidy and Mitch Evans being highly successful. Um, New Zealand punches so far above its weight level that uh, it's an extraordinary thing. And one of the reasons I think that New Zealand drivers do so well internationally is because there isn't that much professional racing. So you really have to hone your craft well. You have to be, you know, at the top of your game. And that amazing statistic about, you know, a quarter of the field in Formula One ran in that Toyota series. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, I don't know why. Um, you know, somebody asked Jackie Stewart once why there was no American drivers, and he said, well, the roads are too straight over there. And that's certainly not the case <laughs> in New Zealand. So... I, I have my theories about uh, kids in go-karts in Australia that, that by the age of about 10 or 12, they've all got their autographs absolutely down pat. And that doesn't happen in New Zealand because no. there's not the number of professional racing drivers. No, no. I mean, and, we, and you know, to be everybody in New Zealand that's gone overseas and been successful has, has been helped by the rest of the country. You know, nobody's done it on their own. There's always got somebody that's got behind them and supported them, you know, not necessarily fully funded, but there's always been people there to help them get to the next step. So, yeah, we're very lucky for a small country and to have – so many, well, very, very, very good race drivers. I, I was listening to a young man. I went over to the New Zealand Grand Prix this year and a young English driver called Lockie Foster. And he was talking about the difference between racing as he did in America and the UK. He started when he was quite young at, at racing in Janetta's at under 14. And one of the things that became apparent, he just talked about how that in New Zealand on the little tracks, you don't have the big runoff areas. You've got to learn to not make mistakes. You can't just sort of guarantee that there's this big runoff area like you'd have at a Bahrain or an Abu Dhabi yeah. or, or a Circuit of the Americas. You know, you've got to have no mistakes. These probably yeah. are some of the reasons why New Zealand kids do well. Oh, I think that's, I think that's very true. I mean, you know, the, the circuits are... For a small country, there, there's a lot of circuits over there and there's a lot of them that are pretty rough and pretty difficult. So I think, you know, that all helps. You know, we'd, when we had an opportunity in the mid-2000s to take over the Team Kiwi franchise because the guy that was running it was having a little trouble. So it had to be a Kiwi driver and, you know, we'd been watching all the Kiwis over there, and we were really impressed with Daniel Gaunt and Shane Van Gisbergen. And so when finally we got the the deal, which <laughs> at that time wasn't a very good deal, but we were determined to make it happen. So Ross went over. He said, I've got to go over. We'll have to make a decision between these two guys. So we Ross went over, and he phoned me every session. He went to Manfield. And he phoned me after every session and said, oh, look, they're both pretty much the same. And then he phoned me after qualifying. He said, oh, Daniel, we've gone a little bit quicker. And then 
we didn't really know what to do. And then I said, well, let's go back to when we're over there with the supercars. Do you remember Van Gisbergen started from the back of the grid because they had a bodywork problem? He was on the front row, but he had to start from the back because they had to pull the bodywork off. And then he passed everybody in the field and passed the last guy around the outside of turn one. And I said, well, to me, that if you can't pick them out, then there's one one thing that goes in Van Gisbergen's favour is his racing ability. So anyhow, we picked Van Gisbergen and, you know, we had a few difficult years with him because he was 18 when we brought him over here. You know, he wasn't. He was a very sheltered kid. He'd had a pretty sheltered life. He'd done a lot, a lot of racing, but didn't know too much about living. So yeah, it was exciting times. All that era. I remember vividly being at Manfield and running into Ross, and he sort of looked at me and said, "Why are you here?" And I said, "Why are you here?" <laughs> yeah. And of course, I was actually going there. John McIntyre, who's a distant relative. Um, and uh, I was helping him with uh, his PR and trying to get him the, the drives. As uh, as you well know, he drove for you guys for a number of years. Yes, um, he did. I only found out. Yeah, I only found out um, from his father that it was my grandfather who lent Don McIntyre the money to start his lawnmowing business in Hastings in uh, back in the sixties. All oh, right. So yeah, yeah, my, my family links with the McIntyres goes back a, a long way, and uh, I'm very glad of it. But yeah, so certainly you did choose somebody in uh, bringing Shane to Australia who has uh, demonstrated time and time again, as so many of the drivers that you brought into the series, um, including obviously Marcus with that dual championship, getting Russell, who for long had been the bridesmaid, not winning a championship, and then getting that one in '05. Um, you've had some wonderful drivers through your uh, collection, and now you're you're still involved with that, and uh, of course uh, building the Gen Three car for the Matstone Racing. Yeah, yeah, it was a pretty difficult time for all the teams. You know, the car was very late. Um, the every drawing seemed to be late coming, and we, you know, we worked very, very hard to get all those cars to the grid. Every team did. It was, and it was pretty good, as far as I was concerned, how many teams worked so close together to make this happen, to make it happen. You know, we certainly, uh, Matt had a really good relationship with Erebus, and they, you know, they helped us and we helped them immensely. Um, Grove, we, we did work for Grove, and Grove did work for us. So it was a really a a good time to be involved to teach a few of the younger guys because Matt had built cars himself at SBR, but he'd in the in most of his racing he then he just bought cars and raced them. So yeah, it was an exciting time for me as to be able to help some of the younger fellows understand what it takes to build a car. And yeah, I was I was quite happy. Indeed, you should be. And, of course, that Cameron Hill learning the game. He's a terrific young driver and obviously somebody who's going to carry the can well and truly high for uh, Matt Stone Racing, as as well as Jack LeBrock, now in his uh, third year, maybe, with with your team. He's only our second year with us, but he's a bit from FBR before right, okay. that. Um, yep. Yeah, he's... he's um, 
Cameron's got a lot of future, you know. Like it was a man; it was hard for him at the Grand Prix with those soft and hard tyres. But everybody struggles with that until they sort of get it in their head how they're going to make it happen. But uh, he shows a lot of potential, and we're pretty pleased. And Jack's driving better than ever. He's got a new bit of wind under him, and so yeah, pretty happy. I'm not going to do an awful lot of racing this year. I'll, I'll do a, a few, but I'm not going to Perth. But, yep, everything else is pretty rosy here. Well, wonderful to hear that. Um, you talked before about Pukekohe, uh, and, of course, it's its final one, which is what we wanted to talk to you about. Tell me your thoughts on the importance of supercars getting back to New Zealand. Um, we put the question to Shane Howard. Um, we actually didn't have the news about the... Uh, the car crates that uh, need upgrading because, of course, the uh, the current car, the Gen 3, won't fit on the old crates uh, easily anymore. Sorry, I missed a bit about the Gen 3 bit. Uh, well, the, the Gen 3 cars won't fit on the old car racks that you used to use to go overseas oh. to fly the cars away. Oh, right. I didn't I didn't realise that. They, they're only a little wee bit wider. I, I can't really... It's... It, it's wheel wheelbase as well as length. Well, the wheelbase is shorter, so that's you know they should be able to get around that. Um, no, I'm not sure about that. Look, to me, it's real important that we race over there. I don't know how it can happen. You know, I I had some talks with some guys in the weekend. Not that I've got anything to do with it, but you know, they thought that the only chance was to get Ruapuna in Christchurch. You know, there's an airport right next door to the track. There's plenty of accommodation. And half of Auckland would come down anyway because the V8s are so popular over there. Um, I don't know. It would be lovely. I can't see it being happening at Hampton Downs. It's, can't get enough people in unless Quinny does something there. I don't know. It's really a bit of a loss, really, and I, I feel quite sad about it. I, I imagine it would. Um and of course, the great thing is, you know, two of the guys who have won multiple championships, um, both came through their uh, teams, your team rather, um, in uh, Scott McLaughlin first, and then Shane Van Gisbergen winning three championships each. And lo and behold, um, you know, the idea of not racing in New Zealand, that just seems totally crazy when obviously there's the enormous uh, desire to see those guys race. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, they're, they're such a competitive nation, nation, those Kiwis, which is where I get it from, I guess, and anything against Australia. But, you know, when the when the Aussies go over to New Zealand, it's just a complete hit. There's not, there's not a single negative about it. So the fact that in the last few years, the uh, Kiwis, uh, Murphy, McLaughlin and Shane and Van Gisbergen have all managed to win races, which has made it even sort of the icing on the cake. But it wouldn't, you know, it's just such a great atmosphere to race in. And that last race at Pukekohe was just incredible. Indeed. I, I can vividly remember the 96 races at Pukekohe when the crowd wouldn't go home on Sunday night. They just wanted to stay there. It was quite extraordinary. I imagine the same thing happened last year when you are at Pukekohe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The crowd hang around for a long time. Yeah, amazing. All right. Well, Jim, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I'm 
sure that uh, there were many times that you got together with uh, some of your your friends over in New Zealand, not just uh, teammates, but some of the people like the, the David Oxtons and, uh, and, and many others um, who are well-known names in New Zealand motorsport. Yeah, we had a great time. I spent a lot of time with Kenny Smith, um, who, you know, in those early days, I repaired a few of his chassis after he had crashes. Yeah, it was it was a it was good to get to see them. I mean, even when you go over there for a holiday, you never get to see everybody. You always have something that you wished you could do. But to go to that, and a lot of people knew we were coming, so they made an effort to come out. And no, it was just a great weekend. I'm sure it was Jim Stone to be at that very final Pukekohe 60 years after it started. I too enjoyed many times going to that track. And while I did land in New Zealand later than you, it was about 1956 or 57 when I landed there, so about 10 years after you had, um, it's certainly a country that I hold dear in my heart and uh, I'm very glad always to be going back to New Zealand. So thanks, Jim Stone, for sharing some of your memories of that final Pukekohe. Thank you very much, Tony. I um, enjoyed talking to you. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more. Or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. You love supercars and keeping up to speed sometimes means hitting the rev limiter? Welcome to the Gates Rev Limiter Podcast. After each round, we unpack what happened. Join Andrew Clark. We paused a fraction and got it right, and they probably still would have won the race. I mean, and yours truly, Neville Wilkinson. These are the heady days when Ford was spending mega bucks for all the action, all the controversy, and sometimes a little emotion. The Gates Rev Limited Supercars Podcast. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or where you listen to them.